Welcome to FinTech in the Cloud with AWS, your direct line to the founders, investors, and startups who are shaping the ever-evolving world of FinTech. I'm your host, Sakine Damanga. On this episode, I was joined by two guests, Travis Halloway, who is the CEO and co-founder at Solo Funds, and Rodney Williams, chairman and co-founder at Solo. Solo is one of the leading financial technology companies for underserved communities. Travis and Rodney share insights on what they call community lending as a service and how they are addressing the needs of underserved communities through fintech in these areas that they both share personal familiarity. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Hi, Rodney, and how are you, Travis? Fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is our first time having two guests on the podcast, so I'm excited to get two different perspectives. One of the things we do on this podcast is we like to start off by understanding your background and your journey in fintech. Tell us a bit about your background and how you eventually got to solo funds. I'll start with you, Travis, and then maybe Rodney after. My background actually started in more traditional finance, where I was a financial advisor for about eight years. And while I was a financial advisor at my former employer, what I realized was that a lot of individuals that I grew up with and I was related to ultimately needed access to small dollar loans for basic necessities. And I would leave work speaking with people who made $250,000, $500,000 a year, and they were focused on continuing to accumulate more wealth and ultimately transferring wealth. I would leave the office and I would get a request from a friend or a family member for $50 or $100. And what I ultimately realized was that the traditional financial sector has never really focused on the average American. You're trying to drive assets under management, commission fees, and you're not really focused on the person who may be making $100,000 a year because their dean is not having enough assets to manage. I realized that there was an opportunity for people who were looking for yields, who were like my father, someone who worked at General Motors for 37 years and had discretionary capital, but no one really ever showed them how to invest capital and drive yield and return. But I realized that there was an opportunity for people like that. And through that process, we could pair capital from those individuals to people who needed access to small dollar loans, and we could solve two needs. One, the need of yield and driving returns for the average American, but also providing access to capital, equitable capital for the people who needed it most. So that's my background and how I decided that Solo was worth pursuing on a full-time basis. Very cool. That's a great story because the whole notion of understanding how to drive yield and return for certain communities, it sounds so simple to many, but it's a very real example of how many people are still not familiar with how to manage that. So the fact that you're able to identify that through personal experience is pretty cool. Thank you so much. So Rodney, curious to get your perspective as well in terms of how you got to solo funds, pre-solo funds, like what was your journey to fintech? Was it traditional, similar to Travis, or was it a little bit different? Slightly different. I actually started my career <laughs> a lot of different places, but mostly at Procter & Gamble. When I was a brand manager, I started another technology company called Listener. And that was what I would call my introduction into tech, so to speak. Um, Listener ultimately did become a financial service technology company with notable investors being Visa. But while I was leading that company, which was in mobile payments, and Travis was at Northwestern Mutual, we also had a shared experience where our friends and family needed access to short-term capital for various reasons, pay a light bill, 
or due to a medical emergency. And we, when we looked at the market, we really did not see an equitable solution for them. And what we came together and decided to do is that I think we can build something that provided really, really equitable access to capital, but at the same time, create yield for communities that otherwise wouldn't have access to that yield. This concept, which we now call community finance, was ultimately born based on those two experiences, but that's ultimately the evolution of solo funds. And when did you guys start together? What was the year? The interesting story is that we probably had the idea sometime in 2015. Travis then left Northwestern Mutual in 2017, and the product launched in 2018. And then I joined full-time. Travis helped me out in 2021. Yeah, April of 2021. Very cool. So the seed was planted in 2015, and then you eventually started off two to three years later. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you want the real story here. (laughs) Yeah, give me the real, real. (laughs) The real story is, is in 2015, we had this idea, and Rodney was running his former company, and I saw how simple his life was at Procter & Gamble. And then I saw how interesting and stressful life could get running a startup. And as I was seeing him on the constant roller coaster of like extreme highs and then the difficult lows sometimes, I was just thinking about myself. And I was just like, man, like I'm comfortable right now. Like I don't know <laughs> if this is really what I want to do. And ultimately what I realized is that the bigger the risk you take, obviously the bigger the reward. And for me, at the end of the day, I felt like what we were attempting to do was going to have a significant impact on the community. And that was well worth taking the risk. It took me two years (laughs) to muster up the strength to take that risk, but I'm incredibly grateful that I did and definitely eternally grateful to Rodney for pushing me to do so. Yeah, that's relatable. I think a lot of people in traditional financial services may have the urge to do something in startup, but then we see our friends and and we see some of the hours and how grueling it can be at times and we step back for a little bit. But then, you know, once you take that plunge, it's definitely worth it, especially if it's something like solar funds that obviously is premises really around community finance and really helping people. I could see how the rewards could be immense. And maybe that's even a great way for us to transition into really understanding solo funds as a model. You have a pretty nice and unique business model. I've heard it defined as the Airbnb for lending, but can you elaborate what exactly that means and what exactly does solo funds do? I know we've alluded to some of the aspects of the construct. Whoever wants to take this, whether it's you or Travis, feel free. Yeah, I'm happy to dive in here. Solo, at its basic premise, you know, the comparison to Airbnb for loans, and sometimes as we like to say, Uber for loans, it basically stems from the premise that we are a marketplace. And that is really what we're providing to the community. We're providing an opportunity for people who have discretionary capital to meet individuals who need access to small dollar loans. And we're not a balance sheet lender. So we're not a bank. We're not deploying any capital directly off our balance sheet. We're literally creating this opportunity for you to meet Rodney, who needs access to $100 to make rent this month. And as you evaluate him and his ability to repay, leveraging some of the tools that we provide, maybe you get comfortable with that, right? You remember when you may have been a year or two out of college and couldn't afford to always make rent and you had to do interesting things. And people do a lot of interesting things to make rent. So with that said, we created this marketplace. Borrowers have all of the control and autonomy over the terms. So a borrower elects how much money they need, what they need it for, when they can pay it back. 
And if they're willing to pay anything in addition to the principal amount, but there is zero imposed fees, there's no finance charges, there is no requirement to pay anything in addition to principal. But borrowers have that complete control. And what they will offer is a return, which we call a tip because it is 100% optional. And that is essentially the yield that an individual who lends capital could actually earn as a return. Once the borrower sets those terms, the lender comes in, they're evaluating a number of borrowers in our marketplace. And once they get comfortable, they can deploy capital directly to that borrower from their checking account. And this happens in real time, meaning that once a lender matches a borrower, which actually happens in 15 minutes, we're probably most proud of that metric. Is It's literally the equivalent of your car being broken down on the side of the road. And before a tow truck arrives, a stranger is giving you money to get your vehicle fixed. And at the point that that lender matches with you and says, I'm willing to fund Rodney's loan, there is literally a deposit to their account within seconds. And that's like magic. And it's the same magic that we felt the first time that we took an Uber and a stranger showed up and said, I'm willing to take you wherever you want to go. And after we got out of that car, we felt something, right? And we wanted to go tell other people. And some people became drivers on Uber after that. And some people became riders just like us. And it's the same thing for solo. Some people become lenders on our platform after hearing about a success story. And some people become borrowers on the platform after seeing that other people were able to get help here as well. So that's the basic premise. It's people helping people. It is financial collaboration at its finest. And when we thought about community banking, we don't believe that community banking is really being seen or executed properly today. And we are, as the only certified B Corp, and that's Black-led in the fintech in the United States and Canada, we're really redefining that. 82% of our lending members live in underserved zip codes, just like our borrowers. And that's what's really powerful because the returns are going back into the community. That's really cool. You mentioned that certain community banking propositions are not working as well. Let's maybe unpack that a little bit. How do you feel like some of those community banking platforms are not necessarily addressing some of the needs that their communities need, if that's what you were alluding to? Well, there's various examples of that. When you think about some of the laws that have been put in place to establish community finance organizations, most notably known as CDFIs, same kind of structure around credit unions. There's been a lot of laws trying to do that. But if you go into underserved markets, underserved zip codes, do you see those organizations? I like to call them financial deserts. Travis and I actually live in a what technically the government would consider a desert, uh, an underserved zip code. And I would tell you that before I would ever see a true bank or a true credit union of any kind, I'm going to walk past a number of check cashing and payday loan products. So unfortunately, if I just take that simple example, you can come up to the same conclusion that they're probably serving this community more products than the community finance organizations that have been told they should. Now, elaborating on that example, when you think about the loans that we offer, CDFIs actually offer loans under $500. And you could take the largest, most successful CDFIs in the country, and they're doing less than 10,000 of these types of loans a year. And when you compare that to Solo, we're doing nearly 30,000 loans per month. Yeah. Do I like to think that we're innovative and we've created something that has never been done, but I like to think we have just answered the demand and we've actually just spoken to the community that needs it. 
and not just one side of it, not just the borrowing demand side of it. We're also talking to the small business owners that also rely in that same neighborhood. We're also talking to the other members of that same neighborhood. Because the interesting thing about financial deserts or underserved communities, in most instances, they're either in rural America or they're in major cities filled with an ethnic population. That doesn't necessarily mean that what most are made to believe as that they're not contributing members to our economy. It's a very, very different group than what's been told. I think Travis alluded to just the user experience, right, from both the lender and the borrowing side. I'm curious to know, how do you verify some of the lenders? Is there a verifying procedure that you typically have? Let's say I'm Sakai and I have X amount of money and I want to be a lender. Like, what is my user experience there? And how do you verify that I'm capable of providing that amount of money? But also on the other side, how can you make me feel comfortable that there won't be a default on the loan? And if it does happen, how does that typically managed? A lender is they sign up on the platform almost exactly the same way that a borrower would sign up on our platform. We actually don't even distinguish lenders from borrowers. Another metric that we're really excited about is that 30% of our borrowing members ultimately lend on the platform, which means that this isn't a debt trap that they're stuck in forever. Their situation ultimately changes and then they end up paying it forward to help other people. But when an individual signs up, they basically satisfy everything that would be required to open a bank account. So they're passing all the AML and the KYC requirements, and they will ultimately decide that they want to lend by finding a loan in our marketplace and then deploying capital directly to that person. Now, the barrier of entry for this product isn't that you have to have $10,000 in the bank or $100,000 in the bank. It's that Maybe you find a borrower who needs $50 because gas is extraordinarily high right now. And you want to deploy $50 to Maria to help her put gas in her tank, make it to work, not get fired and be able to continue to provide a standard of living for her family. That is, call it the barrier of entry. It's $50, which is the minimum loan size. And the maximum loan size on the platform is $500. But there is no requirement for you to financially show that you have a large pool or sum of capital. Now, on the flip side of that, though, so what we do to make you comfortable as a lender is essentially provide you with a few things. One, we provide you with the background of a borrower's behavior within our platform. So if a borrower has taken multiple loans on our platform, you would be able to see if they paid those loans on time, if they paid those loans late. If the borrower had not repaid a previous loan, they would not be eligible to take another loan in our marketplace. It's essentially a one and done scenario until you repay. But on the flip side, what you would be evaluating as a lender is what we call the solo score. And the solo score is an assessment of a borrower's ability to repay, which is largely driven by a cash flow analysis. And why do we say that, right? People say things all the time, but what's our logic? The logic is that FICO scores hit an all-time high the summer of 2020. And what also was happening the summer of 2020 was obviously COVID was running rampant through the country. And literally 80% of our country was waiting on just $600 via stimulus payments from the government that they didn't receive until January of the following year. So how could that truly be indicative of your ability to repay? It can't. It's not. And it's really an assessment of your ability to make multiple payments over a long duration of time, where we're really evaluating your ability to make a single payment on a specified date and time. So cash flow analysis has worked for us, and it's performed three times better than industry average. And really what we're proving here 
is that individuals who need access to this capital, although people will perceive that maybe they're less financially disciplined or they're less financially literate, the reality is, is that these individuals are teachers and social workers who are gainfully employed and highly educated, but simply live in geographic areas where the cost of living may be high and their incomes just aren't high enough to absorb financial shock. So it's not a matter of whether they can budget. Actually, I would argue that many people who borrow on our platform budget significantly better than people who have more capital. Well, what is it, a third of people who make $250,000 or more? The most recent report said they still live paycheck to paycheck, who are in, call it the millennial demographic. So income is not necessarily an assessment of your ability to budget. It's just simply you make more. And when you get paid and your bills are paid and ultimately you have $100 to last another five or seven days, I would argue that those people are budget creme de la creme because one payment coming out on the wrong date can throw off everything. So they're constantly checking their balances. Life happens. So what happens if somebody defaults on a loan? Because things happen. And how do you guys manage that on your side? If someone does not repay a loan on the agreed upon date, they essentially go into a grace period for a period of time. And after that, they essentially get 90 days to repay that loan. At that point, we do send or refer that loan to a third-party collections agency, which will attempt to, with dignity, recover those funds on behalf of the lender. But the majority of loans are paid well before that 91st day. And we're incredibly proud of that. And that's largely why the platform has continued to grow is because lenders are being repaid. They're having good experiences in the platform, which is what has continued to propel our business forward. How many users do you have on the platform to date? We actually are crossing over 700,000 registered users. We, we talk about where, you know, the largest and fastest growing fintech that most people should be talking about. But what we opted out of is bringing a bunch of celebrities on stage and the big funding announcements. And what we kind of focused on is being in these communities and letting the community talk about what they need, let the community advocate for it. Nearly 70% of our growth and user base came to us organically based on the activity that was happening in the platform. Rodney, I noticed, I think it was an announcement that I saw when I was doing my research prior to this conversation around a product that you just started or just developed, a recently launched called Essie. Am I pronouncing it correctly? A financial marketplace and community for building a platform. Is that a new solution in addition to your lending capabilities? It is definitely a new offering. So to give you perspective, Essay, which is a today a collaboration alongside Essence Media, Essay actually stands for togetherness, but it's essentially a white labeled version of Solo in our infrastructure that's specifically designed to support Black women in the community that Essence Media have got together. So yes, the future is going to be really, really interesting. We're actually going to be curating and designing and launching a number of specific products designed to focus on Black women, it, to give you perspective on why that's so important, specifically minority women over index and leveraging bad financial products. There's also significant discrepancies in minority women and their approval rates across different forms of credit for various reasons. And we're going to introduce a community finance platform to that community. It's going to be very, very different, but it is built on the infrastructure and white label of Solo. It is part of a new offering, which we're calling community lending as a service. If you think about what we've created, like we don't even want to hear about 
the predecessors that tried to do this, we have surpassed their wildest dreams in terms of a direct consumer to consumer product. We're doing obviously 700,000 members, but over 450,000 loans. We have definitely what I would call situated ourselves as the experts in this model. And not only are the experts, we've created the infrastructure and the white label so others can start to leverage this for their communities. So that's essentially what community lending as a service. It is an infrastructure product and offering that we're allowing other fintechs, other banks, other community organizations, other media companies like Essence to tailor the specifics to their community and continue what we call this community finance revolution. So- the title of this podcast, obviously, is called Fintech in the Cloud. So we like to understand some of the cloud infrastructure that's leveraged with some of the fintechs that we speak to in the podcast. And so I'm curious to get your perspective, and I don't know if it's you, Rodney, or Travis. What role did AWS play in your development? And what point was cloud identified in your overall journey? We've actually leveraged AWS from the beginning, and it's played a significant role and what we've done. And actually what we've done over the last few years is actually only start to leverage AWS services and cloud services for more and more of what we do. We actually migrated our entire database over from another company that I will not name and be respectful here to <laughs> AWS. But with that said, there's a million acronyms, right? Of things that we leverage from EC2 to ECS and RDS, but largely ActiveMQ is something that we've leveraged significantly around messaging like as a message broker. And then our data team has been leveraging SageMaker since the beginning and on the machine learning kind of front of our credit assessment and in our risk model. So it's been, when you think about our score in SageMaker's kind of the way that we leverage SageMaker for that score, right? The score is what drives everything. It's one of the main pieces of intellectual property that we have, but it's also what powers the entire model. If our model is not working, that means that delinquency and defaults is skyrocketing. That means that lenders are having a terrible experience. That means that borrowers can't get funded because lenders are not having a good experience. So long story short, AWS has been and cloud services have been a pivotal part of what we do here. And this is a relationship that we see lasting for a very, very long time. Great. We like to hear that. Your business model, like I mentioned earlier, is quite unique in the lending space. Obviously, the premise of it is not so much unique, but the way you're managing it and the way your proposition is addressing this need is pretty impressive. I'm curious to get your perspective on some of the emerging trends that you think will be coming up in this space in the next five to 10 years. It could be anything outlandish or something that you think is generally tangible as you grow Solo Fund. What are some of the trends that you're seeing? You know, I do think there is a trend. It's a continuation of a trend. I do think people are trying to address the problem that we're trying to address. I think we all understand that there's a significant wealth gap among certain groups. And there's a number of folks trying to address this in a different ways, whether it's credit builders, whether companies trying to assist in rent payments and incorporate rent to fix credit or to mitigate some of those concerns there. There's a number of like options there. I mean, the entire cash advance, early pay industry, I think is also predicated on the same premise. The biggest trend that I think is going to be important is the one that we're ultimately finding is that I think for the first time ever, the builders trying to address this problem are from the problem, meaning they, right. what's starting to be new, and it's very, very new, is that for the first time ever, literally, 
the group that's building the solution is from it. They're intimately aware of it. Their family is from it. We have too much of a history of individuals creating products for markets that they go and visit on vacation or during product research. We have an entire regulatory infrastructure of, I think, thoughtful and caring lawmakers. But again, they're visitors of the market. They're not necessarily from it. So I do think an emerging trend that we're definitely part is that we should start to see the builders coming from where they are very similar from the markets they serve. And that's their competitive advantage. That's going to be how they create great products and how they innovate. Yeah, I love that. And I completely agree with you. I think we're seeing a bit of a trend where people in whether it's an emerging market are obviously going back to their original markets or countries with this whole reverse brain drain that's happening and actually building solutions that are speaking to them or speaking to people within these financial deserts, as you referenced as well, because they come from these places. And I do think it's going to grow significantly as time progresses. And I think it's a It's a beautiful thing to see because the communities are being seen genuinely, which will be fascinating to see as we progress. Rodney and Travis, we've reached the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining. I'm so happy that you joined. I really enjoyed this conversation and enjoyed listening to you both about solar funds. But where can people find you and learn more about solar funds? People can find us at solar funds everywhere on Instagram, on Facebook, LinkedIn. Twitter at SoloFunds is our tag. My tag everywhere is just Travis Holloway, first and last name. And Rodney, I believe you're Rodney B. Williams. That is correct. That is correct. Great. Thank you so much, guys. This is really great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, please feel free to leave a review and rating. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please visit aws.amazon.com slash startups.